So as we're heading into the Passover season, we've interrupted our series on the end times to do a mini-series going through some of the Old Testament prophecies that were written that would allow Israel to unequivocally identify their Messiah. And last week we began looking at the preposterous claims of Christ. And these claims were ultimately expressed in two remarkable ideas that Jesus articulated. Uh, it's in your notes there. First, I am the Messiah. And second, and most outrageously, I am the great I am. I am Yahweh. And this gave us the incredibly high bar for Messiah. Here's your first blanks. Any and all apparent inconsistencies between Jesus' life and the Messianic prophecies must be resolved. So got that? Any and all apparent inconsistencies between Jesus' life and the Messianic prophecies must be resolved or the entire foundation of Christianity crumbles. So we looked at 10 specific prophecies. Some of these actually had multiple prophecies within one, but we counted it as 10. Um, and you can see them listed there from Exodus, from Daniel, all of these amazing things. Genesis 49, number 5, the Prince of Peace had to be born before the scepter was taken away from Israel. That's something we'll de deal with in detail tonight. It is truly amazing. From Micah, from the Psalms, from Zechariah, the exactly 30 pieces of silver. Uh, from Exodus 12, the no bones broken, that astonishing picture of bones broken on both sides of him on both crosses and yet his, not a bone broken. And then uh, Messiah would be crucified, another thing that we'll deal tonight, with tonight, which is really... Uh, remarkable that Jesus was crucified. And so we took all of those and using the mathematics uh, that had been worked out by a, a team of mathematicians where some Christian mathematicians got their colleagues who were agnostic and some who were actually atheists, avowed clear atheists, so that they would have this composite of a team. And they worked together and they published um, the, uh, pro uh, the pro mathematical probability uh, of meeting just 10 of the Old Testament prophecies in a single person and notice here, here's your blanks. It's approximately one in 9.3 quintillion. So write in your th five sets of three zeros there, right? A nine, a three, and 17 zeros behind that. That's just 10 prophecies, and there are more than 330 specific messianic prophecies. So notice one way to try to I tried to put this into some framework that is in everyday life because it's so incomprehensible. And one way is, is to realize this is similar to the likelihood of winning a state lottery three times in a row without missing in between. Just It's functionally impossible. Um, and so uh, last week we dealt with the sense of the scope of the messianic prophecies because that's only 10. Imagine when it's more than 300, what the mathematics get like. Um, but this week, I'd like to deal with the specificity. So last week, the scope. This week, the specificity of the prophecies. <coughs> and to do this, we'll look through some prophecies that narrow the historical time window during which the Messiah had to come. And so let's begin with some historical facts. Here's your blanks. Historical fact number one, write it. There is an explicit historical endpoint this is from a prophetic historic, uh, historical perspective. There's an explicit historical endpoint after which the Messiah could no longer come. Look from this now in this series, what should be very familiar to you from Daniel 
chapter 9, look at this. This is the 77s, really, remember 70 groups of seven years uh, have dealt with this repeatedly uh, throughout the Thursology, if you've been listening. 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city, so you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, so that's the starting point, until Messiah the Prince, until Messiah comes. Uh, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So 69 groups of seven years, we did the mathematics of that in what is probably the most amazing timing prophecy in all of Scripture. Um, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And it goes on to say, and, and will have nothing. Will die. So notice, this prophecy creates a scriptural mandate for any would-be Messiah to actually qualify. They had to live and die, had to be cut off, before 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. Because remember what happens? You come along and do the 69 weeks, and then Messiah comes, and Messiah is cut, cut off, and then the city and the sanctuary is destroyed. This prophecy establishes that the latest time in history that Messiah could possibly come, and it gives us the prophetic endpoint. Ready? Here's your blanks. No one living after 70 AD, because remember, he comes, he's cut off, and then the temple is destroyed. No one living after AD 70 could possibly be the Jewish Messiah. But this wasn't true just because of the prophecies. It was also true for a very practical reason. And I don't know if this has ever occurred to you, but here's the practical end point. Ready? Write it in. When General Titus of Rome destroyed the temple in AD 70, the genealogies, because that was kept in the temple, the genealogies, they were kept in the temple. The genealogies were also destroyed. And thus, after this, it was no longer possible to verify the lineage of any potential Messiah. So notice, to be able to show that they were from the tribe of Judah, from the line of Jesse, from the kingship of David, those were very specific messianic prophecies. All of those had to be met. Well, they kept meticulous genealogies in Israel and in the, in the temple, especially of the line of Judah, because they were looking for Messiah. But that was all destroyed with the temple in 70 AD. So... It's a great tragedy that many of the Jews still await the coming of Messiah because it's too late. This is an important passage, by the way, to point out when you're talking to someone who believes the Hebrew Scriptures, but is still waiting for Messiah to come. It's forever too late, and they would never be able to identify them and their lineage. Historical fact number two, here's your blank. The Messiah had to be crucified. The Messiah had to be crucified excuse me, that the Messiah had to be crucified is an incredibly important factor in the historical timing of his death and reflects specific prophecy of the highest order. You'll see how that unpacks here. So much is known about the life and death of Jesus, it's easy to essentially take these facts for granted. In fact, there are many specific details of Jesus' story that are miraculous. Miraculous simply because they happened the way they did. And this would be true even if Jesus never performed a single miracle. Those who say that there's no way Jesus did the incredible miracles that the Bible says he did actually only need to look at the miracles that occurred within Jesus' very life. Let me take a moment to put some meat on this idea. <coughs> and I'm going to be a bit more specific about a concept that I introduced last week. 
In our increasingly skeptical culture, it's important for us to understand that you'll never convince a skeptic that Jesus actually did miracles. You'll never convince them that he walked on water or that he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. These are examples of miracles that are no longer verifiable. In fact, these kinds of miracles are only believed after someone understands that the true and verifiable miracles within the very life of Jesus himself have been fulfilled. That he is Messiah, that he is God, that God is God. Then believing the miracles is all of a sudden a completely different issue. Once you know the creator of the universe in his glory, believing the other miracles becomes a no-brainer. Because think about this, if God spoke a hundred billion trillion stars into existence, What's a few thousand fish sandwiches? It's not a big deal. Feeding 5,000 people, no problem. He can speak stars into existence from nothing. So here's the key concept. Write it in, here's your blanks. The battleground for belief is not the miracles of Jesus. The battleground for belief is not the miracles of Jesus. The battleground is Jesus himself. Always remember that. You're not leading people to believe in miracles. You're not leading people to believe in Noah's flood. You're leading people to a person who embodies the truth. The understanding and the belief in the word and in the historic, historicity of the miracles and so forth comes after a person has dealt with Jesus himself. So if you're discussing the truth claims of Jesus, where do you start? Start with simple, undisputed verifiable truths about Jesus. Don't spend time arguing about things that can no longer be verified. And tonight we're going to see how that looks. Let's begin the conversation where we would start if we're in interacting with those who want to know why Jesus has any special claims beyond that of being a good moral teacher. The key is to begin with a truth that no one argues with. At first, you may think this approach has you talking about mundane facts that are unimpressive and will get you nowhere. However, we'll see that within the evidence that surrounds one simple historical fact is the potential power to persuade some of the most skeptical minds. In fact, it has done so throughout history. This is what happened, exactly what happened to C.S. Lewis in his famous conversion from being an Oxford faculty brilliant atheist philosopher into being one of the great writers of Christian history. So here it is. Here, you ready? Here's the, here's the you're not going to believe this is the focus and you're going to see how amazing this becomes. The mundane, commonly known, non-controversial, universally accepted event from history. Ready? Write it in. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by Rome in the fourth decade AD. That's right. There it is as mundane, as non-controversial, uh, non and as basically commonly known. There it is. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by Rome in the fourth decade AD. And a perfectly reasonable follow-up question would be, that's it? Everybody knows that. To which my answer is, exactly. And now you're going to see how powerful that simple, easy-to-believe, well-established fact is in leading people to see the perfect revelation of Jesus. 
So don't let the simplicity or the commonness or the ho-hum nature of this truth blur the reality of just how incredible it is. So look with me at John chapter 18. Your, your text, I think, is probably all in your notes tonight for efficiency. Look at this. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they may not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? So it's the trial before Pilate. They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, talk about a non-answer, if he's not this, would not have been, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate then said, take him, to your, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, this is so incredibly important. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Look at this comment by John. To fulfill the word of the Lord Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Now, what's that all about? Given the massive implications of the events of, of Passion Week, why in the world would the Holy Spirit inspire the Holy Spirit John to include this seemingly trivial bit of detail about Roman jurisprudence? We're going to find out that from answering this question emerges a remarkable proof of Jesus' messiahship. So, why were the Jews, here's your blanks, why were the Jews not permitted to put Jesus to death? Ready? The right of Israel to declare capital punishment was taken away in AD 7 by Rome. You can find that in ubiquitously. It's in the British Museum. You have, this is well established in Roman history. The right of Israel to declare capital punishment was taken away, taken away in AD 7 by Rome, as it was all of their other vassal states uh, as well. So it turns out, that this is unbelievably important because if Israel had the authority to pronounce death, the form of execution would have been different. Again, I alluded this to this last week, but we'll see how important this is. So for example, we see this play out in John chapter 8. The chief priests and Jewish leaders confronted Jesus as he was talking about Abraham, and this led to an intense interaction because they believed Jesus was blaspheming. Look from John 8 in your notes. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Here's Jesus talking. And he saw and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, and he would have actually said the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, it was how we think it's pronounced. Um, he says, I am. I am that I am. He's stating the name that God gave to Moses when he asked for the name. So therefore, look what happened. They picked up stones. Very key. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So what does the scripture make clear here? Here's your blanks. If the Jews had executed Jesus, if the Jews had executed Jesus, he would have been stoned. But why would this matter? And the answer is because it would have created a messianic disqualification. Write it in, you ready? Anyone, was, anyone who was stoned could not be the Messiah. Really? Why? To answer this, we need to work through a, a series of crucifixion-related messianic requirements. Ready? Requirement number one, write it in. To be Messiah... His hands and feet had to be pierced.
pierced. Look at this from Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of the earth. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Ready? They pierced my hands and my feet. And as we learned last week, the scripture foretold that Christ would be executed by the Roman form of death. Amazingly, this was prophesied more than a thousand years before the Roman Empire even existed. Requirement number two. To be Messiah, he had to be lifted up. He had to be lifted up. So let's pick up the Old Testament story at the parting of the Red Sea. Israel had already been miraculously delivered from dying for lack of water, miraculously delivered from starvation through God's blessing of manna, and now they feel themselves inconvenienced by a journey that God has set them out on. Look at Numbers chapter 21 with me. Uh, I, think, I think it's in your text there. Look at this second paragraph of chapter 21. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go through the land of Edom, and the people were impatient because of the journey. <coughs> and the people spoke against God. It's pretty, pretty funny. I mean, it's really amazing. Spoke against God and Moses. Have you brought out of our, uh, us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this miserable, miserable, miserable food. So the life-staining manna now, which actually was probably quail, not bad. That's expensive meat. Uh, we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. And you would you intercede for the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us? And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it out on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, some of you may think this is completely obscure stuff. What does this have to do with making Jesus relevant and proclaiming him Messiah? But you may not be aware that John used this very passage in the gospel, and he placed it, you ready? Right in front of one of the most famous of all passages in the entire Bible. You might be stunned to find out that John described this very event immediately before John 3.16. So let's look at that passage right before this kingpin verse. It's in your notes. Look at this. 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses, you ready for this? Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How amazing is that? Did you ever notice that the bronze serpent being lifted up in the wilderness is the prelude, it's the preparation to the most renowned announcement by John about salvation? But now we're going to see that the gospel actually pushes this even farther. Requirement number three. Here's your blanks. He had to be lifted up to save the world. Not just the Jewish people who had been bitten, but to save the world. Look at John 12. 
My soul, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Are you ready? And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And now notice the explicit clarification of what this means. Once again, look at this detail, seeming almost so out of place. But look at this, verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Now, why did he make such a big deal about this? And what kind of execution or why would execution matter? What was the point of being lifted up? Here's your blanks. The point of being lifted up, stoning would have killed Jesus. That's right. Stoning would have killed Jesus, but it wouldn't have saved anyone. Why? Because merely dying wouldn't have dealt with the real problem facing the world. And to get a feel for what a big predicament humanity was in, we have to look at the, the last word ever uttered to the world by a Hebrew prophet. The last word in the Old Testament, look at this, we're in the last verse of the Old Testament, and he, meaning Messiah, will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. If you look at Matthew 1.1, the first verse in the New Testament, and go to the left one sentence, guess what the sentence ends with? curse. Think of this. At the time of Jesus, the world had lived for over four centuries with the last word that God had spoken being the word curse. So what did humanity, humanity need? Here's your blanks. To save the world, someone had to come who could take the curse away. <clears throat> and this brings us to a key biblical concept. This is foundational. You ready? To take the curse away, the Messiah couldn't just destroy sin. This is so important. To take the curse away, the Messiah couldn't just destroy sin. He had to become sin. That's right. Messiah had to become the curse to take away the curse. And that's why one of the greatest verses in the Bible, one that many Christians have hardly ever even thought of, is this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at this. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us. So Jesus had to become sin. He had to become the curse. And the Old Testament is explicit that the only way that someone could actually become the curse is explained in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Look at, here's the literal translation of the verses 22 and 23 in Deuteronomy 30, 21 from the Hebrew. Ready? And if you hang him on a tree, he who is hanged is the curse of God. Not just cursed of God, is the curse of God. And to save the world from the curse, Messiah had to become the curse. And to become the curse, he had to, to hang on a tree. And this is exactly, now, look at these New Testament passages, which you may have just read through before, having no concept of how important and foundational they are. Look at this from Galatians chapter 3. Write it in. It's so important. Write the text in. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
For it is written, ready? Write out of Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So think about this. God brought Jesus on the scene and maneuvered the major power players of the world so that he would die after 7 AD so that he would be crucified rather than stoned. But notice, he also brought him so that he would die before AD 70 to meet the prophetic requirement that the Messiah had to be cut off before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. But if that wasn't impressive enough, now we're going to see that the historical window is far tighter than this. And to see this, we turn from the timing of Messiah's death to the timing of his birth. Historical fact number three. Here it is, write it in. There's an explicit historical endpoint for Messiah's birth. There's a, an explicit historical endpoint for Messiah's birth. And the scepter is the key. S-C-E-P-T-E-R. The scepter is the key. As we begin this point, since so many of the prophecies we're looking at tonight relate to this issue, let's establish that the scepter is indeed a reference to the authority to declare capital punishment. To see this, we pick up during the Persian Empire in the reign of King Ahasuerus, and he's looking for a bride, and Esther, a Jewish girl, has become the queen through a series of amazing events. But the powerful evil man, Haman, who's the second most powerful in the kingdom, has found out that Esther is Jewish, and he intends to slaughter all of the Jews throughout the land. And Esther's uncle, Mordecai, sends a message to her explaining the plot and imploring her to go to King Ahasuerus to beg that the lives of the Jewish people might be spared. But here's a problem. Because Persian law says that the life of anyone who dares to go before the king unsummoned, their life is forfeit. So despite all of the grave danger, Esther decides to go before the king to plead for the lives of her people. And here's what happens. Look at the text here. It's in your notes from Esther chapter 4 and 5. Then Esther spoke to Hathach, her uh, one of her friends she grew up with, a man, and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know for sure that any man or woman who comes to the king or to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. Isn't that interesting? And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days, says Esther to Hattach to tell back to Mordecai. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put her royal robes on and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on, the, on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And notice what happens. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which he had in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. So now that we understand that the scepter was a symbol of power to declare capital punishment, let's apply this to Jesus' day. When Rome declared that Israel no longer had the authority of capital punishment, there should have been an immediate anticipation of an enormous event. 
When Rome announced that all capital crimes had to be tried in a Roman court, the whole nation of Israel should have known that this meant that Messiah was already living in their generation. The rabbis should have sent out a proclamation that they knew Messiah was somewhere among them. And this was because of very clear and specific prophecy that was made by Jacob all the way back in Genesis. We began looking at it last week, but here's the core of it. Look at from Genesis chapter 49. Here it is. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter, meaning the right of capital punishment, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. You ready? Until... Shiloh comes. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now remember, the Jewish rabbis taught that the Hebrew word Shiloh, or as we call it, Shiloh, is a synonym for the Prince of Peace, and it's a specific identifier. If you look in the Talmud, you can find it. It's a specific identifier for the coming Messiah. So you ready? The Genesis 49 prophecy, this is your blanks. The Genesis 49 prophecy interpreted in historical context means the Messiah would come into the world before Rome removed Israel's right to declare capital punishment. Look at that again. The Messiah would come into the world before Rome removed Israel's right to declare capital punishment. And so... Genesis 49 gives us the messianic starting point. You ready? Write it in. Jacob's prophecy meant that after the right of capital punishment was taken away from Israel in AD 7, think it, think it through. It was forever too late. Here's your blanks. It was forever too late for Messiah to be born. Think about that. After the 7 AD capital punishment removal from the vassal states of Rome, making capital punishment the scepter held only by Caesar and those governors that Caesar gave the power of the scepter, no longer did the Jewish people hold the power of the scepter. It had been removed. And what that means is it was forever too late for Messiah to be born after AD 7. So now we're ready to put everything together that we've studied tonight. And uh, I'm going to do a little bit of uh, uh, fairly cheesy uh, visual here, but uh, you've got this in your notes. So if you're on the podcast, make sure you go and uh, get the URL and get the notes out because you'll need to see this because of the complexity. And we're going to work this from the bottom up. Um, and look, look in your notes here. You can see the timeline here. Here's Abraham back in 2000 BC all the way through. Here's uh, here's. Moses and there's David at 1000 BC, the Essenes, that's important because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we know nothing was doctored in the Old Testament after that because we have perfect copies of the Old Testament there um, as they exist today still, amazingly enough. In 2 BC, Jesus was born. Notice the lion there, that's 7 AD, that's when Rome took away the scepter uh, from Judah, the uh, capital punishment. Then 32 AD when Jesus dies, 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. Okay, and then uh, all the way out to today. So look with me what happens in letter A. In Daniel 9, Messiah is to, be, um, uh, to die before the temple was destroyed. So notice, go over here to 70 AD and see how there's an arrow pointing this way. What that means is Messiah has to have lived and died by the time the temple is destroyed, according to Daniel. And also because of the practical matter that we talked about, that after that, the genealogies were destroyed and no one could identify the Messiah ever again. 
Okay, so then move to letter, letter B. Numbers 21 and, and Psalm 22 together, look what it gives us. It gives us that it's going to be, uh, it, we know it's going to be crucifixion. So notice here, that means it has to be somewhere from 150 BC forward because before that, crucifixion had never occurred. Again, Moses declared this, and yet that was more than a thousand years before the, anybody had even thought up crucifixion as a means by which to do capital punishment. So notice, you got 70 AD here, it's got to be this way, and you got 150 BC, it's got to be this way so that he's crucified. But notice now when you move into C, and again, work through this on your notes, and now you can start filling in blanks. Look at this. Between Numbers 21 and Psalm uh, 22, combined with the history of capital punishment in Israel and the mandate to verify his lineage. Look at this. Write this in here. The blanks there is still, they're still stoning, right? Between 150 BC, just because the Romans crucified people, since they still had the power of the scepter in Israel, they were still stoning people when Israel declared capital punishment. As you know, many people were stoned to death when they broke uh, the they blasphemed God, for instance. So notice, that gets you out to 7 AD, and it means, write your blank in here, crucifixion occurred between 7 AD in Israel and the 70 AD, which is the destruction of the temple, after which it becomes moot because the Messiah can't, can't uh, live past that time from Daniel. So write in crucifixion. So notice now, crucifixion begins as the form of capital punishment in Israel at 7 AD, and between 7 AD and, the, and 70 AD, Messiah has to have already been born, come and die between that time. And then letter D, combining this with, with Genesis 49, this is really key now. Look at this. Messiah had to be born. Here's your blanks. Messiah had to be born, right? But couldn't die before 7 AD. So Messiah had to be born before 7 AD, because of the Genesis 49 prophecy, but he had to, he couldn't die before 7 AD because if he died before 7 AD, he would have been stoned. So you ready for this? Up here, write it in. He had to die after 7 AD. He had to be born before 7 AD, and he couldn't be born after 70 AD, excuse me, 7 AD, couldn't be born after 7 AD because of Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49. And notice what happens then at AD 70 because of Daniel and the practical issue of the genealogies. Forever too late to be to come. Look at that. Absolutely astounding. Born before 7 AD, die after 7 AD. Everything has to be done by 70 AD. Absolutely astounding. And so let me summarize. What we've studied here tonight, I guess I better move this or that's going to get, that's going to get, get pretty boring pretty quickly. Let me summarize, and it's, it's in your notes there. Um, the prophecies that we've unpacked in a way that only a totally sovereign God could do, he perfectly threaded the historical needle. And so look at the messianic prophetic timeline now, kind of the, uh, the big uh, uber one, and this is in your notes. Look at, here's Abraham and here's today. So that's 4,000 years of history. 
Since we started getting the great messianic prophecies, Abraham didn't know, Jacob didn't know he was doing in 2000 BC that he was doing messianic prophecies, but now we know in retrospect. Look at this. In this 4,000 years of time since Abraham and Jacob, when Jacob gave the messianic prophecy in chapter 49, look at this. All the way up until 7 AD, they were stoned in Israel rather than crucified. So any would-be Messiah who would come and declare themselves God and blaspheme and say, I'm the Messiah and I'm the son of David and I'm God, would be stoned until 7 AD. But because of Daniel's prophecy, remember, and because of the genealogy issue, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, Messiah had to have come before, come in and died before that happened. So look at this. This is actually overstated in your notes. Sorry, that's the, that's the font. <laughs> but in this entire scope of history, look at how tiny the window is that the Messiah of Israel had to come just from this set of less than a half a dozen messianic prophecies. So think about this. Among all of those who've claimed to be Messiah throughout the ages, when you use the scripture to specify the exact details of all the meticulous prophecies that had to be perfectly fulfilled, all of the other names on this long list of would-be Messiahs vanish. And guess what? What is left is one name standing. The name Jesus the name that is above all names, the name of the one whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what happens to all of the would-be messiahs. Only Jesus is left with the prophecies. So let's look at our application. Ready? It's a long one. Through scripture and through the unfolding of verifiable history, God has given us indisputable evidence. God has given us indisputable evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But this leads to the enormous question of whether we will share it with others. Hmm. Yeah, not just looking at prophecy now and timelines. We're now going to apply this to us. Look at this, the amazing, from you, I'm sure you know it well, from 1 Peter chapter 3. Write it in. This amazing statement. Write it in, sanctify Christ in your, uh, Lord, as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And this gives us the conclusion of 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. Write it in, you ready? Every believer, every believer is responsible to be prepared to defend the faith. Unfortunately, when a day when many followers of Christ quietly remain on the sidelines of battle for the mind of this generation. We're in a day when the wisdom of this age is spouted off essentially uncontested. These absurd, most absurd concepts are blathered on endlessly on TV and online, in the classroom, in the hair salon, and essentially every single public space. Tonight's session has shown how powerful the word is at validating Jesus Christ and his claims. But despite all the evidence and all the biblical tools at our disposal, we've treated the defense of the faith as if it's something reserved for biblical scholars, seminary professors, and preachers. But apologetics in this sense 
being able, as Peter said, to make a defense to everyone for, uh, who asks to give an account of the hope that lies within us. Every believer is supposed to have the ability to take on the wisdom of the age. That cannot be outsourced to the academy. So as we finish tonight, I'd like us to look at a biblical example of God's plan for how his people are supposed to be ready to defend the faith. In the book of Acts, Luke, the author, tells us about a man named Apollos. We're going to go through the text and find out the six attributes of Apollos, who was a defender of the faith. So notice for attribute number one, look at Acts chapter 18. It's in your text there. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. Write it in, write it in attribute number one. Despite being merely, I'll put merely, a layman, despite being merely a layman, Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. For attribute two, look at the next verse. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Isn't that an astounding statement? By the way, all he had was the Old Testament. John's message was all from the Old Testament. And amazingly enough, notice how could he have only the Old Testament and being, look at the text, speaking and teaching accuracy, accurately the things concerning Jesus? Because the Old Testament perfectly reveals the accurate portrayal of Jesus. Ready? So here's attribute number two. Ready? Despite being without formal theological training, <laughs> look at this, despite being without formal theological training, Apollos was accurate in his teaching about Jesus. Attribute number three, Look at in the next verse here. And he began, he, Apollos, began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. So here's attribute number three. Write it in. God used him to speak boldly even though he didn't have perfect understanding of the scriptures. And attribute number four comes from the rest of verse 26. Look at it. But then Priscilla and Aquila heard of him. They knew, of course, they had been under the apostles' teaching. They were well-schooled in the scriptures and the understanding of Christ, the the risen one. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here's attribute number four, write it in. He was open to being corrected. Imagine that. He was open to being corrected even though he was mighty in the scriptures. He was not impressed with his unbelievable knowledge of the word. He was open to being corrected. And for attribute number five from verse 27, look at it. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, notice, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. So here's attribute number five, write it in. Even though he wasn't a rabbi or a preacher or a missionary, Apollos was willing to sacrificially disrupt his life going all the way across, all the way across to Achaia. Apollos was willing to sacrificially disrupt his life to take the truth to others. What a contrast to the typical modern American church. We expect those who are full-time in ministry to give their life for the kingdom. 
But many of us laity act as if the only thing we need to do uh, is in terms of the uh, uh, really pretty much the sum total of what American evangelicalism often is, is we have to do the big sacrifice of going to church one, once a week and maybe putting some money in the offering. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you consistently sacrificed significant amounts of your time to take the love and the message of Christ to others? Do you think that that's the job of paid ministers? Have you come to the point where you outsource the gospel to professionals? And now look at the amazing result of this average Joe layman. Ready? Attribute number six from verse 28. Here it is. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Ready? Here's attribute number six. Here's your blanks. He clearly understood that one of the highest callings of every believer, one of the highest callings of every believer is to demonstrate by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So let me ask a question. And please take the time to be really honest with yourself. If you've followed Jesus for any significant period of time, have you ever demonstrated that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ to anyone? Think about this. We say that we have the most important truth in all of history. We say that the past, present, and future of the world rises or falls on whether Jesus is who he says he is. We say that there's nothing more important in life than knowing the one true God. We say that all of the other truths in human existence pale in significance compared to the truth that Jesus lived, died, and was raised again to new life. So here's the question. Are we lying? Or has several centuries of cultural haze in a historically pseudo-Christian nation made the truths about Jesus just kind of blend into a host of other competing interests? In fact, it appears that many in the church treat Jesus as a pastime, but not as the mighty one of Israel. So let me ask the question again. If you've followed Christ for any significant period of time, have you ever demonstrated that Jesus is the Christ to anyone? And if not, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for your pastor to do it? Or until you have a seminary degree? Or until an easy button comes along so that the knowledge of the scripture just drops into your lap without lifting a finger? That won't happen. You see, all of us are called to prepare to give an account. And there are a myriad of great tools around today. In some ways, it's never been easier to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. But here's the problem. To be ready to give that account for the hope that lies within us, it takes time. It takes commitment. It takes effort. It takes focus. It takes study. But all of these things are costly, and they require us to pay a price. Listen, most of the people around us will never meet someone who has a PhD in theology. And that begs a big question. Who's going to show them that Jesus is the Christ? Are we simply hoping that they'll somehow stumble into the truth? Think about this. Many of the people we know 
won't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ unless they hear it from us. Let me say that again. Many of the people we know won't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ unless they hear it from us. So let me finish tonight's session with a simple question. Do we actually care in our day? Who will pay the price to be mighty in the scriptures? Who will be ready to give an account? In our day, who will defend the faith? Let's pray. Well, Lord, your word convicts us. We don't know it well enough, clearly, but what we know tonight has convicted us. It has pointed at us, Lord. We are surrounded by people who likely will never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ unless they hear it from me. So, Lord, to all those who are truly serious about knowing and obeying your word and making a difference in your world, and who really believe that is the one truth that all of history rises or stands or falls on. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will transform us, will cleanse us, will make us bold, will make us like Apollos, mighty in the scriptures, so that we can refute the spirit of the age, and we can with grace and with love see people who are in darkness come into the light. Do so in us, Lord. You must transform us for this to happen. We love you so much. Amen.